Good morning and welcome to the Home Show with me, Sinead Ryan. Coming up today, we'll be meeting a master watchmaker who'll be telling me about the intricacies of creating grandfather clocks. Minister of Heritage and Electoral Reform Malcolm Noonan will be in studio to discuss the new national policy on architecture. If you're thinking of buying a piece of art for the home, how should you go about it? We've an expert in. And Arlene McIntyre will be showing me how to make the most of summer interiors. If you'd like to get involved in the show today, you can text us here on The Home Show at 53106 for 30 cent. You can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you'll find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. You can listen live or listen back to any of our shows on the podcast, which is on the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. Now, first up, in the age of the smartwatch and digital technology, my next guest is a master watchmaker. Not only that, he's one of the original members of the elite and respected watchmaking bodies, the AHCI, or the Academy of Independent Watchmakers. Bernard Ledger, thank you uh, for joining us uh, this morning on The Home Show. You're very welcome. Thank you. Now, uh, your interest in watchmaking began at a young age. Yeah, Uh, it was when I uh, was 16 years old. I inherited from my grandfather a very simple pocket watch. Today I know that it is a simple one, but uh, when I inherited it, of course, it was the most precious uh, pocket watch uh, in the world. And uh, I felt uh, a little bit left handed to have a look, a deeper look into the movement. And I was so afraid that I may uh, destroy this uh, piece of art that I decided, first of all, to uh, went downtown to the library. And there I borrowed some books about watchmaking. And this is how I got infected by this lovely virus. Now, how long did it take you to train to become a horologist? Did you go to college? And how did your parents react to you wanting to take up that profession? My parents, uh, they reacted quite strong. My my father, because you, you may not forget, it was in the 1970s when the quartz watches had been on the peak. And my father, when I told him that I decided to stop school and to become a watchmaker, he explained me that he will be able to show me how to put in a battery uh, into a wristwatch uh, and that for this uh, experience, I must not leave school. <laughs> and uh, but I decided, however, to to leave school, and uh, because I had the chance to learn watchmaking in a in a private watch museum, there where I learned how to make uh, pinions, how to make wheels, how to cut and carve uh, hands, and uh, all what you need to make a watch from A to Z. I was with your own hands and with some basic tools. And that sounded for me so interesting, much more interesting than to have Latin lessons at school, uh, that I decided, however, to leave parents home. And I went to Wuppertal, a small town in the middle of Germany, where at that time uh, was this private watch museum. And uh, the time to educate uh, in Germany, you have to go for at least three years. Uh, to apprenticeship, and then you have to work another four years as a watchmaker, and then you can go to the school to become a, a master watchmaker. So uh, it is uh, quite a long time that you have to fulfill what you have to go through, but on the other hand, you have a chance to 
pick up a lot uh, of uh, experience and uh, you have the chance to see different workshops uh, with different master watchmakers and so you get more rich in, in your experience what is quite quite a good thing and um, you're coming to Waterford this weekend for the Festival of Time and we'll talk about that uh, in a few moments uh, Bernard but uh, one of the other things that you have been very involved in is the making of larger clocks, monumental clocks, grandfather clocks. Talk to me a little bit about that. I believe that you made one uh, in Rio for the millennium. Yes. A huge project. Yes. Yeah. What, what interests me in, in watchmaking also is, of course, clockmaking. For me, it's uh, uh, all what is in mechanics is uh, to... To find out things uh, that seem to be not so easy to realize. And uh, in the beginning of my career, I started uh, with uh, with uh, table clocks and grandfather clocks because I wanted to show the beauty of mechanics. And uh, based on this, once I learned that uh, there is a project in Brazil where they wanted to build up a huge monumental clock. And nobody uh, wanted to do that because uh, of one condition that was that uh, there should be a center, central second hand without a visible counterweight. And uh, the size they imagined was a second hand more long than three meters. And if you imagine uh, a second hand three meters long must be uh, uh, quite big volume be solid and when this volume will be attacked by the storms of the sea um, then you know that then why everybody refused to take the job and uh, I, I, I thought it's so interesting and that that I was sitting down and I was uh, making uh, drawings and uh, uh, a skiss and um, reflected and made details and after a while, after some weeks, I, I had an idea how to make a second hand turning around and uh, to not give to any wind and any storm a chance to turn the second hand backwards. And when I had that solution, I addressed myself to uh, this company in Brazil that had this project and presented it and told them that uh, I'm willing to do it. And it was quite funny. They wanted to have it in three places. They wanted to have it in uh, Rio de Janeiro, in Sao Paulo, and in the little town where Cabral uh, some 500 years ago uh, first put his feet on, uh, on, on the country. And when I built it up to first, they had been so fascinated that they ordered uh, one of these monumental clocks for each uh, department and for each capital of each department. So instead of three months being in Brazil, suddenly I had been there for one and a half year. <laughs> and uh, this is what makes watchmaking also quite lovely uh, when you are open to do things that are unusual. Always will have positive surprises. And indeed, your watches are incredibly unusual. I, I was having a look through your website and there's an awful lot of them don't have, you know, a dial. Uh, they don't have a traditional face on them. You, you do go for very complex designs. How intricate is the process of making uh, a piece? Uh, to make, to, to have the first idea, 
to make the first drawings, uh, go more to detail, uh, make a construction of the movement, and then uh, start to make it, uh, to have a base for making case design and dial design. This is a, a very, very long process. Now, this intricate level of precision and art comes at a price. I know that you have a signature limited edition out now. You made just 50 uh, of the watches. It is, is it the central impulse chronometer? Wh- what kind of price are we looking at, if that's not too rude a question, Bernard? No, uh, the, the watches are sold um, at a price of 128,000 Swiss francs without the tax. Uh, that is our export price. And um, wow. beside of the price, uh, I have to tell you that uh, all reactions we had until now is that uh, people estimate that it's for many years uh, the first watch what is realistic, what you get and what you pay for. And I, I think that is one of the reasons why nearly all of the watches are already sold out. <laughs> and now we have this exhibition here. So if people have, if people have a spare 120,000 euros or so, they can, they can go and pick one of those up. They'll get a bargain. Now talk to me a little bit about this Festival of Time that's on in Waterford, uh, what people can expect from that Festival of Time here in Waterford. Hello, what people can expect when they come here to this exhibition is a cumulation of high-end watchmaking, uh, not industrial watchmaking. So there are no Rolexes, no Patek Philips that are in, in, in big industrial production lines. Here you will find the real hand-making excellency in, in the art of watchmaking. A lot of people will fall in love with artisanal handcrafted watchmaking Bernard Leder, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Uh, I'm sure people will be flocking along to see you uh, particularly and all of the other uh, watchmakers that will be there. And if anybody wants to go along to that, the Waterford International Festival of Time takes place in Waterford City this weekend. Uh, and the Waterford Treasures Museums is open, the Irish Museum of Time, and the tickets are available on waterfordtreasures.com. Uh, Bernard, thank you so much for joining us this morning on The Home Show. I thank you very much. Now, still to come on The Home Show, Minister Malcolm Noonan will be joining me in studio to talk about the new architecture policy. And you're very welcome back to The Home Show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan. before the break, I was speaking to Bernard Lederer and he was telling me about the magnificent and beautiful watches uh, that he makes. Um, and I, I nearly fell over when I realised that uh, they, uh, the one he was talking about actually cost over €120,000. Um, I don't know that that's within the ambit of The Home Show listeners, but who knows, maybe it is affordable to my next guest <laughs> who is here to talk about the National Policy on Architecture, which was launched this week. Um, But can it truly take on the urgent sustainability and social challenges that we face? And will it help our communities to flourish? Malcolm Noonan, Minister of State for Heritage and Electoral Reforms, joins me now in studio uh, to discuss this. Uh, Ministers could afford to watch for €120,000, Minister, couldn't they? I never (laughs) wear a watch. You never Never. wear (laughs) I work on on a different timescale, I think, uh, and most uh, ministers and, and politicians do. Interestingly, when the Museum of Time 
in Waterford and if you ever get a chance to visit it it's a fantastic yeah, really yeah. amazing place perhaps some of those watches might make it in, in there and in, in due course indeed indeed and that's what we were talking about there and uh, before the break and it's um, it sounds absolutely fascinating uh, for sure anyway you are here to talk about more practical matters um, places for people this new national policy on architecture uh, launched and it's a very comprehensive document it's very long um, and very aspirational and it covers everything from public buildings to green spaces and housing and all that there's a lot of integration or attempts with integration to wider European um, policies, the Green Deal, Bauhaus, the Urban Agenda, all that kind of thing. How much of this is being led by the EU rather than Ireland? It's not. Uh, it's it's a complementary approach and the new European Bauhaus that you referred to is that a coordinated effort to bring a disparate range of European policies uh, through national governments and through national and to filter down into the national and then filter down into the local. That's what this policy document, which Minister O'Brien and I launched, uh, is setting out to achieve. And it's, it is hugely ambitious, but it has to be because of the challenges that we face in, in our towns, our cities, our villages. But also you look around the issues of climate resilience, around biodiversity. Our cities and towns have an important role to play in ensuring that we have livable spaces. We have places where, where young people can congregate and feel happy to be in and people of all ages. So I think it's a it's a huge, big objective to try and bring together all of these policies in under one uh, overarching policy and then implemented at national and local level. Do you think it might provide a fillip to what we are doing and maybe an impetus if we are obliged to kind of integrate ourselves with what is happening in a wider European context? Does it stop a bit of navel-gazing maybe? It, it's, it certainly does. I was involved in a European, a pan-European project, uh, an Urbach project a number of years ago which had nine municipalities looking at the historic cores of city centres and one commonality we found, we were all facing the same challenges. If we, There was conflict around pedestrianisation, there was conflict around uh, contested spaces, around meanwhile use for buildings, etc. And that, that commonality is I think that's going to serve us well if we look at, at the, the wider context of, as I said, of the climate agenda. I think being able to learn from our European neighbours is really, really important. Context might be slightly different in mm. different countries, different cultural aspects, but but generally the issues of, of good architecture um, tr- transcend boundaries. And I think it's really important uh, from, you know, the, the interaction we've had through this policy document is that, Architects want to be part of the story. They want to be part of the solution. Mm. They are about problem solving. And they're, you know, I think we can see where there's good public realm, where there's good design. It can tackle all sorts of issues such as antisocial behaviour. It can make places much more welcoming, more welcoming for people with disabilities or visual impairments. And if we get a good urban, strong urban environment with good construction materials and good design, I think people feel better in themselves and feel safer in, in a community that is well designed. Now, we've had plenty of opportunities, of course, to develop green spaces, public buildings, and goodness knows we've enough heritage that you could shake a stick at, you know, even from Georgian all the way through to Victorian and and onwards. It can seem to me sometimes, especially here, look, we are in Diggs Lane in the centre of town, that everywhere you look, we're building a hotel. Um, Do you think we're providing more places for tourists to sleep than we are for things for them to look at? That's, you know, that's interesting. I don't think so. I mean, I think we have significant built heritage here. Perhaps some of it we're, we're overlooking. Sometimes, and I, th- I see it very much in my own hometown of Kilkenny, 
where people look for the, the simple, the vernacular and, and not to the big grand, uh, you know, facades or, or, or built uh, elements that we might think they look for. So I think in Ireland, we have something distinct and unique in the Irish town that is is very much uh, has evolved over centuries from pre-Norman times to, to where we are now. Uh, that is something um, that we should be celebrating. And perhaps we've turned our back on it. Mm. We see, you know, uh, timber sash windows being replaced by PVC. We see uh, lots of features being removed from buildings. Car we parks. see traditional sign writing being taken away. Apartment blocks. Yes, yes. And so it is. And then and then these some of these beautiful buildings and old pubs that we have are, are just lying derelict and nothing's been done with them. I mean, it just kind of flies in the face of everything that, that this is trying to do, really, isn't it? It, it does. but And I think that's why getting this document together and it's been a labour of love for a lot of people, a lot of stakeholders for many, many years to get it, this uh, national architecture policy out. And, and I think what we have been doing in our department and Minister O'Brien and I have been you know, very keen to promote the, the work that we're doing through the heritage section, through the grants that we give, you know, the Built Heritage Investment Scheme, mm-hmm. the Historic Structures Fund, the Heritage Council have been doing amazing work on, on heritage-led regeneration. So we, I think that the narrative is changing. That narrative needs to transcend itself now into policy and implementation. And where we see good exemplars of heritage buildings being brought back into into productive use, not just for for uh, you know visual amenity, but actually being used, I think that's where we'll see the key to the future. We see also with the with the crisis in Ukraine and the intake of of people fleeing that that awful conflict. Uh, there's an opportunity for old buildings to be repurposed and reused using heritage values and good conservation techniques and, and you to know bring what? them back Th- into That's use. absolutely a green policy. It has to be because we all have to think green these days and repurposing old buildings as any architect, and we've had dozens of them on the show over the years, will say that is the first step towards reusing what we have, upcycling what we have, rather than building brand new. But when there are policies brought in by over-the-shop living or this city living initiative, they just never really took off. Is it that there's not enough money put behind it or or people, the planning resists it? Because, look, it's Ireland. Everything gets stuffed up for years um, in planning, Minister. And there, is there, there's no way out of that. Well, the one thing we found, and I, certainly there was a review of the Living Citizen Initiative a number of years ago, there are barriers there. A lot of owners of premises feel constrained by the fact that their 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 building is a protected structure and they shouldn't. That's what our grant schemes are for. So I think one thing we've we've learned from the town centre's first policy, which is very much complementary to this, is that we have a one-stop shop. We have vacant uh, t- um, buildings officers mm. in each local authority who, who would work with premises owners to get them through the, the minefield of different um, plannings and consents and, and trying to get past Do the they want to do techniques. it though? Because I mean look there's an awful lot and we know there are owners out there landlords out there they are deliberately not developing because do you know what it's cheaper not to and they just wait for the uplift in prices Yeah and I think that's unfortunate and that what we want to do is, is unlock that potential in those buildings and let the owners of those premises see Or bring in a hefty tax to make them use them Yeah that I think, I think Is the stick not needed now more than the carrot at this stage? Yeah to we need both, and and that's why we need a good suite of policies, architectural policies. We need conservation officers in every local authority. We need architecture, uh, architectural technicians. We need professionals We've working in Dublin. local authorities to lead on policy, but also to work with premises owners to to get those private because the majority of these are private buildings, mm. uh, and certainly local authorities themselves can only take in and take up a certain amount of heritage building stock. How we use it, what we do with it, all of that's up for question as well you know, remote working hubs, uh, community art centres, etc. All of these will help the capacity in town centres. So 
What you need is to try and merge a policy of heritage-led regeneration, but also good quality urban design and urban public ground design, good landscaping, yeah. you know, really... Um, See, I don't at, think at there's any, there's around. no shortage of creativity in Ireland. We have fantastic, award-winning architects, globally recognised. We have great urban planners. Um, it just seems to all kind of grind to a halt when it comes to putting kind of turf, <laughs> turning the sod kind of thing. And... You know, I just wonder, is there more that we could be doing to get this moving a little bit more quicker or, or bypass some of the the complaints and the, the objections that people have? Naturally, when you introduce any change whatsoever, even though it's something that everybody will agree with in the end. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I think it's important to have uh, that our planning system is open and transparent. It is, you know, the the um, Attorney General is in the process of reviewing the planning um, regulations, uh, the Planning Act at the moment. But it is important that people have the mechanism by which they can make a comment on a, on a particular development. And that, yeah. that is the, the fundamental premise of our planning system. But I do think, and what I've noticed traveling around the country uh, over recent years, is that there is something significant happening, particularly in the smaller towns. We're seeing a lot of really good innovation happening. And I think, you know, particularly, you know, we, we know the exemplars. We know Westport. We know Clonakilty who have used heritage-led regeneration. And the Kenny. City and yeah. Kenny. Use good uh, city architects yeah. to lead on the planning and to ensure there's good public realm. And I think other towns are learning from that. And what they're seeing is that the town itself is getting an uplift by virtue of, the, of that investment. Mm. So, and so I'm starting to see a lot of that type of approach happening in other local authorities. But yeah. it is important, and I, I did state this at the launch, that local authorities have the key skills that they need to support both private premises owners, but also communities to be part of the story. So yeah. the, the way you, you deal with conflict in planning is that you move towards participative planning and forward forward planning. Well, and no, good, really good, robust. Listen, nobody can conflicts. argue with that, Minister. But um, I mean, somebody like John Moran of the Land Development Agency has long advocated that, in fact, the way you do that is by moving the funding out of Dublin and back into the regions and let local decisions be backed up with local money. I, I'd, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. And, and directly elected mayors. Yes, direct, absolutely. And we're going to see a directly elected mayor rolled out for Limerick. I would love well, to see that. Well, three years <laughs> yeah. waiting to have that yeah, legislation and, and, passed. Know, I suppose the other aspect, I mean, 2014, we lost a, a, a tier of local government that I think was really important, our borough and town councils in my own City of Kilkenny, we had a, a corporation, a borough council there since the 13th century. Yeah. And, mm. you know, to abolish <laughs> that layer of, of, of local government, because it is really is truly accountable to the city and this and the funding stays in the city. They're able to strike their own rate. They're yeah. able to strike, you know, I think that's that is something that I mean, it's for a future government to address. And then you get that ownership, important. don't you, locally? You do, exactly. And yeah. and it's that ownership that you talk about uh, is, is interesting because, you know, if one thing you see and you see it a lot of times on social media, if a, a local butcher's or a local bookshop closes, there's huge public outcry. But if people aren't using these places and they're not, and they're going to their retail park on the outskirts of the city and they're not using their town centre shops, mm. their independently owned shops, well then they will lose them. Okay, now listen, you lost a couple of TDs overboard this week over the National Maternity Hospital um, debacle. Um, does, do you think this destabilises the government to get this kind of long-term agenda fulfilled? I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, we... We, we acted uh, in, in unison as, as, as a parliamentary party and, you know, the, the sanctions have been accepted by both deputies. Um, I think it's important to show that, you know, you need unity in government. And I think that's what, what we, we did yesterday. I think so. 
it, it I you know we and we've le- we're leaving the door open to both uh, to NASA and Patrick. They're valuable members of our yeah. parliament. You can't afford to lose anybody else, though, can you? No, no. I think there's, there's there's still a good, strong, stable government there. We're working really well together. There's a lot of really amazing policies coming through, and you know, it's it's it was a very ambitious program for government. If you look back to 2020, negotiated in the depths of a pandemic, and it's being implemented right across. And and you know, I, we work really well with our, our government colleagues right across government to get that done. We we are aware of the urgency of it, and. Uh, I think we won't be deterred from that. Mm. All right. Well, we will wait and see. And uh, Malcolm Noonan, Minister for Heritage and Electoral Reform, thanks very much for joining us in studio today. Thank you. Now, buying art for the home can be a little bit daunting, especially if it's something you're just starting to invest in, where to place it, what to buy and what will actually look good in your home are all decisions to weigh up before you splurge on that beautiful, huge painting. Well, Rosemary Noon is the owner of Claire Morris Gallery in Mayo and she joins me now to share her recommendations on how to approach this process. Uh, Rosemary, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. When it comes Thanks, to, Lovely to, be here. to buying art... Um, I, I've heard gallerists before saying that the only rule, the number one rule, the thing to follow is buy what you love. Would you subscribe to that? Yes, I do. A hundred percent. I think buy what you love and what you can afford and you can't go too far wrong. Because it is a very subjective thing. And I think people, if you are investing, I don't know, a couple of thousand euros, maybe in a painting, there is something at the back of your mind that eventually wants it to end up an antiques roadshow and be worth a million quid or something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the vast majority of my buyers come and they want to buy something that they like and something they want to live with, but they secretly, yeah, harbour that ambition to have um, a great masterpiece that will um, go for a huge price at auction in 20 years. Yeah. But I would still operate within those parameters. I mean, if you look at anything else you might invest in, like bank shares can disappear. An artwork will hang on your wall and, and won't disappear. So mm. it'll be a source of enjoyment for your life and something that you can pass on to your children. But in saying all of that, it is important to buy in the right places from the right people and support support professional artists. So mm. I would recommend that you avoid buying work from um, maybe amateur artists or paying paying over over the odds for work from amateur artists when you could be supporting professional artists who've dedicated a life to creating art and sometimes find it very hard to get by. And if you support the galleries that support and represent these artists and show their work, then you're really supporting the whole cultural ecosystem that allows um, Irish art to thrive. And I suppose when you shop in a gallery, you know, to some extent, a collection has been curated for you. Um, You know, it has been, provenance has been checked out and you presumably, you know, most of the artists that you feature. What is it that makes a piece special? I mean, you're a professional now, so you are looking at things like the technique, the composition, the form, yeah. the subject matter. What elements are important in, in selecting a painting yeah, or sculpture? It's a, very, it's a very good question. I mean, you can evaluate a piece on many technical levels, as you suggest, and uh, look at all those things, composition, form, palace, and the way the materials are handled and pulled together by the artist. But I, I mean, what I really look for, kind of an alchemy really at play where you get a strong sense of the artist's viewpoint because that, after all, is the point of connection with the artist. 
And what you look for after that, I mean, it might be you might be looking for something beautiful, intellectually engaging, provocative, reflective. Um, but I would say when you're new to art and you're looking at art for the first time, the most instantly gratifying pieces aren't the ones that will hold your um, interest long term. I think like really look at a, a piece and try and find a hook in there, you know something that will keep you engaged and interested in looking in that piece for many, many years and so, not skip will say that your eyes will eventually just glaze over in the house. OK, so w- would that be like avoiding very overly representational art? You know, rolling no. landscapes and hills are lovely, but you're saying that that's all there is. Ah, uh, No, not at all, not at all. I think like Ireland boasts some really fabulous landscape painters and representational art has a very important place in in the canon of Irish art and in art worldwide but just within those areas there are I hate to say good and bad but there are more successful paintings and less successful paintings like so if you look at really if the painting hits you on a visceral level or 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 you know you have a gut reaction to it, it might be the light or the movement or the, the way the paint is, is handled by the artist, but something it has to have something special. Yeah. And I know that all sounds very wishy-washy, but I think really you have to just look and look and look at art. And really, the more you look at it, the more your eye improves, the more you re- you can appreciate um, the difference between, mm. you know, a really great painting and a pretty picture. Anything you should avoid if you're new to all this? Um, yeah, well, I think in terms of the care of the artwork it's important a few a few technical things like don't hang paintings over hot radiators and you know they'll they'll expand and contract and even the most robust oil on canvas will deteriorate and um, don't hang work in direct sunlight um you should avoid this and um, i know that's hard in a lot of light cell departments and that kind of thing and you can be extra vigilant with blinds, but I would suggest framing works on paper, especially behind um, museum glass, which is mm. UVA and UVB resistant. Um, other than that, uh, moisture is a real will really damage paintings. Never hang artwork in bathrooms or in place where you might have mold or damp, and, and really it, it's a real killer. Um, so avoid that. And obviously fireplaces aren't all made equal, and it's fine to hang work over certain electrical stoves or where the where the heat is at or removed mm, from mm. the art but um you know obviously you wouldn't hang a lovely work on paper over a big roaring turf fire you know <laughs> no, so. well you won't have it long if you do i wouldn't think <laughs> now look what what should people be buying now i'm i'm not going to ask you to get out your crystal ball but yes. um what is selling at the moment there's an awful lot of art auctions on uh, yeah. every so often you see them and you know Beautiful art, Louis Lebrocki and Paul Henry's yeah. and, and coming up like that. And I mean, you're into the big books there now. There was a you piece are. during the week um, that sold in the UK. I think it was a Picasso for f- like something like 40 million dollars. Yeah. Like that's up at the mad yeah. end of things. Is anything ever worth that? Um, well, it's worth what people are prepared to pay it for the people who are spending the money, I guess. I mean, the art world in, on, in that sphere is, is quite you know it's bonkers like non-fungible tokens are kind of the latest trend oh and listen don't buy. get us started on those yeah. things I mean whatever <laughs> about hanging a painting even if it's a Picasso over your mantelpiece yeah the non-fungible token stuff is well look I I, I had a guest on trying to de- describe it all to me a couple of weeks ago and I'm still none the wiser I'll be honest with you 
But yeah, it's it's kind of very. Um, I mean, it's it's not my thing, but I find it interesting as a point in the sort of continuum of of art that we've reached this point where art is now indistinguishable from currency. Mm. So it'll be nice to see the pendulum swing the other way. Do you think that people are a little bit too conservative when it comes to art? Um, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, some people are, are probably over-concerned with um, subject matter at times or or maybe stick too closely to... I mean, I remember when I opened my gallery first, I introduced um, Mary Kelly, who was then making a lot of photographic work, to a buyer, a very interested um, art buyer. And she said, oh, no, I don't buy photography. I only buy art. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, Ireland would be conservative. We like we like the splash of the oil paint and a proper frame. Is that it? <laughs> we do, yeah. But I mean, there's no right or wrong. No it's a question of what you like. No, indeed. And there's a lot of, of kind of mix and match uh, going on uh, at the moment. All right. Well, Rosemary Noon, owner of the Claire Morris Gallery in Mayo. Thank you very much for uh, that insight, uh, and thank you for joining us on the Home Show today. Pleasure. Thank you. Now coming up, summer interiors with celebrity designer Arlene McIntyre. And you're very welcome back to the home show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan. I'm with you till the top of the hour. And you can get in touch with us this morning by texting us on 53106 for 30 cent or emailing us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. Now, as we head into summer, it's a great time to think about whether your space is sunny and bright for summertime and what colours and textures and ideas might make the best impact at this time of year. Well, don't worry, Arlene McIntyre, founder and creative director of Ventura Design, is here with her masterclass to chat about this. You're very welcome along, Arlene. Hi, Sinead. How are you? Good. Not too bad. Now, listen, we're not going to spend a fortune redecorating our entire Mm -hmm. home at Christmas. So it's really just about tweaks that we can make, things we can do just to liven it up, freshen it up and I suppose take advantage of any good weather that's there or even if it lashes rain for the next couple of months, we can at least feel as if it's summertime inside. Um, Now you've been looking at a few ways to do that and the first one actually starts at the front door, um, a summer wreath. Now we're used to wreaths at Christmas, uh, so tell me what a summer wreath is. I am Absolutely loving. There's an absolute big trend everywhere at the moment for beautiful outdoor wreaths. And I think this is a real way to bring in a colorful pop to the entrance of your home. So it almost immediately sets the tone for the summer. I I actually change my wreaths every three or four months. So uh, I'm really into wreaths myself at the moment. So this is a great way to inject lovely color to your front door through the autumn, the winter, spring and summer including beautiful high, ones with hydrangeas and lavenders and just beautiful, bright tones. So you have one all year round then, just and you just change it for the seasons? I do. And do you make them yourself or do you <laughs> buy them? Well, I'm, this is something new that we are going to be introducing to Ventura and to our collection, so I'm very excited about it. It hasn't officially launched yet, but um, they are handmade bespoke wreaths that we're sort of curating our own collection of wreaths. So something that we'll be able to launch with each season. Okay, and it kind of poshes up your front door. Is that it? I mean, if it you've does. got a, yeah, just yeah, the colour. I think it really makes your front door look quite pretty or it can create quite a striking statement. So it depends on your personality. 
And I think it adds a bit of character to your home. Mm. Now, uh, while we're still outside then, outdoor pots. Now, lots of people have plants and pots and bits and bobs at their front door. I think it can be quite nice to have something on either side of the front door. Now, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, I cheat here. I have lovely wooden boxes, which I've spent money on, but actually the trees that are in them are fake <laughs> because I can't be doing with all that topiary <laughs> and making them look like birds <laughs> and hedgehogs and all that. Yeah. Talk to me about that. I I could not be more on your page. Uh, I mean, I also have artificial uh, toperies each side of my front door oh, what that look smashing 24-7. <laughs> I never have to water them. Um, they always, you know, look beautiful and green and shaped beautifully. So, yes, artificial is the way to go. And by the way, all of my reeds uh, are also artificial. So they really hold their color and their shape. So I think that is the way to go. Okay, good, good call. Otherwise, you'd be at it all the time because you Absolutely. want them to look trimmed and nice and all of yeah. that. Okay. Um, now, uh, the colours of summer. So if you're looking for accessories, cushions and throws and, and that kind of thing, I, I don't know what, what, I suppose the thing that screams summer to me, it isn't the pinks and the yellows. It's actually that kind of New England, Maine, you know, that blue yeah. and white candy stripe colour? Yes. A hundred percent. The the ginger jars, that kind of Ralph Lauren crisp, classic blue and white summer tones. Um, and I absolutely love introducing gorgeous jars around spaces and homes and hallways, bathrooms, kitchens, living spaces. I think it just adds in a lovely kind of fresh punch to a room. Jars. Now, what do you put in them? You could put a big bunch of uh, flowers, fresh flowers. I think pink and green and white tones are really beautiful against that blue and white Ming jar kind of colour scheme. Okay, and I suppose you can, I've seen them filled with kind of fruits and uh, twigs and branches and stones and all sorts. Exactly. And another, another interesting thing you might consider is bringing in glass jars, which you can fill up with a big, you know, a pile in loads of lemons and limes and stack them all in and position them somewhere on your kitchen table or on your kitchen island. And I always think that adds a lovely kind of zesty colour punch to your space. Wonderful. All right. Now, if we're looking for a colour pop in our living areas, so our living rooms, uh, and we just want to swap out maybe some cushion covers or winter woolly throws, what what do you advise for that? What colours are working at the moment? Greens are very good. I think they work in most spaces. Uh, Of course, sea greens, pale blues, blues. Um, Coral tones are absolutely gorgeous as well, and they're very summery. So definitely uh, have a look at your color scheme. Uh, You know, every room is very individual, so it just depends on your your colors and it just depends on your light and your space. We don't want to overdo that because it can be a bit overwhelming if you suddenly buy kind of six blue cushions and scatter them all over the place. Do you have to be a little bit kind of judicious? Yes, maybe introduce a couple uh, some stripes with with a bold color, and m- I wouldn't necessarily put all bold colors together in one space. I think I'd break them up with a pattern. Um, maybe introducing one uh, sea green solid color with perhaps a pinstripe to complement it. Mm. Um, you could also mix in another navy blue tone. It really just depends on your palette, but you can introduce colors in a very fun way. To make, you know, liven up and freshen up your living space. Also, don't forget the accessories. I think that's a very important thing to, to bear in mind as well. Like Creating what? lovely trays of accessories, introduce some colours and corals, um, beautiful coffee uh, table books. 
can be great. Now, and coffee table books. OK, so <laughs> so this is where we can get a bit aspirational. So uh, we had a guest on last week and we were talking about curating bookshelves and, you know, how to do it and how not to do it. And mm-hmm. th- there seems to be a trend for curating them horror of horrors by colour. Uh, rather than by genre or author or whatever. When it comes to coffee table books, I mean, are we going to show, you know, maybe have something about you know, holidaying in Florida or private yachts or so, you know, I mean, just to make make people envious and think that we actually read this I know. stuff. I know. I, I sometimes buy a book because I absolutely love the cover and I love the colour on the cover of the book. So I really kind of consider the whole package when I buy a coffee table book. I suppose I have to enjoy the book, the content, and the color. And I have to feel like it would really work and complement the room that I'm going to put it into. So I try and build up colors. May it be something on, uh, you know, around the Hamptons or, you know, seascapes or gardening. And they're really great colors uh, if, the, if the cover of the book has a nice color pop on it. They're really lovely things to introduce onto your coffee table. And they add interesting color and to I mean- the room. If you're entertaining now and you want to show off a bit or give the impression that you're you're across all this stuff, you could just go to your library. Some of the libraries have big coffee table books. Yeah, exactly. Right. Make sure they don't see the label inside. It, that's <laughs> exactly. The OK, right. So books, um, always good to do that and maybe stack them a little bit differently or have different uh, colours there. Right. OK. Now, in terms of plants and houseplants, big fan of that. We love bringing the outdoors in, especially in the summertime. Yes. Um, so aside from plants, though, like having... Uh, maybe collections of things around your house, you know, these big wicker baskets. What, what would yeah. you put in them? And, and do they look nice in summery, don't they? As if you've just they returned do. from the beach. They do. And I absolutely adore wicker. So definitely hunt out some really gorgeous wicker baskets. Um, style them up with, you know, throws could be beautiful. Um, in fact, you could use them as somewhere to put your plants inside, like floor trees can look really gorgeous out of a wicker basket. Um, collect some seashells and pop them into your bathroom in lovely little ceramic bowls. I think that's a lovely thing to do as well. Mm. And maybe introduce some nice throws. Don't forget magazines have a lot of color on them as well this time of year. So some nice glossy magazines could be an interesting color pop. Good idea. All right. And of course, those throws, those lovely summery things, you can always put them away in the wintertime and then replace them with the, you know, the woolly ones and the velvet ones and all that kind of thing. All yes, right. But pull out the fresh linen, anything cotton and linen. Yeah. I think it, it, that really sets the tone for the summer. All right. Well, listen, fantastic ideas there, Arlene. Uh, thank you so much for bringing them to us. That's Arlene McIntyre, founder and creative director of Ventura uh, Design. And that is all we have time for this week. Uh, if you'd like to uh, pose us a question, suggest a guest or a topic we have on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, email us uh, at the home show at newstalk.com. We'll have everybody reading those during the week. You can text us here at 53106. And don't forget to check out our podcast with some great ideas like the tips Arlene just gave us there on the News Talk website. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan producing today with Stephen McLoon on sound. Anton Savage will be feeling summery. He's up next. Have a great weekend. See you here next Saturday at 8am.